We must protect the shield. You may not recognize those words, but those were the words spoken by Roger Goodell when he became the commissioner of the NFL. Of course, what he's talking about is the shield of the NFL, the brand that represents the multi-billion dollar industry of the National Football League. And he's had his work cut out for him in this last year, hasn't he? With issues of domestic violence, animal cruelty, drug abuse, child abuse. Just this past week, he put down a sentence of a one-year suspension for Adrian Peterson, a running back for the Minnesota Vikings. And if you'll look at his statement that he made when he handed down this punishment, one of the reasons behind such a strong punishment was because he didn't feel like Adrian demonstrated an adequate amount of remorse. But I want to pause here and just ask you a question. Do you think Roger Goodell's primary motivation is the safety and well-being of innocent children or the image of the NFL? Is he protecting kids or is he protecting the shield? You see, his biggest problem is not the sin of any one person. It's a culture of compromise that has developed within an industry that's built on selfish greed and public appeal. And the reason I wanted to get you to consider the reality of what's happening around us today is because I believe it applies directly to our passage this morning. In fact, I think Paul is dealing with a very similar situation in the Corinthian church. See, the Corinthian church, as we've talked about, has found themselves just kind of playing a a religious game. Not unlike the NFL, they are expanding their influence based on selfish greed and public appeal. They are more concerned about protecting their own image than fulfilling the mission of God. They're more worried about being liked than being holy. And that lack of accountability has developed a culture of compromise within the the Corinthian church. And unlike the, the NFL where the commissioner has the authority and the power to dole out punishment as he sees fit, Paul's looking at the Corinthian church and he says, Church, that's your job. You are responsible for holding people accountable within the body of Christ to live lives consistent with our calling. This is a tough passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is somewhat controversial. And one of the reasons is, is because Paul narrows his focus to one particular person involved in one particular sin. But I need you to hear me very clearly this morning. The focus of Paul's concern is not the sin of one person. The focus of Paul's concern is the failure of the church. He holds them responsible for turning a blind eye towards sin. For being caught up in their own selfish pride. For building bonds that promoted this compromise in the first place. As far as Paul is concerned, the endorsement of the sin is as bad as the sin itself. He's holding the church responsible. This is important for us as we enter into this passage to have an understanding. Paul, when he's talking to the Corinthian 
church describes for them who they are as a people of God. He says, you are God's temple. The very place where God's presence dwells. And we need to understand that when Paul is describing the Corinthian church, he is describing us. We are that people. We are the temple of God. This is the place where his presence dwells. What scripture says about the people of God is true for us as well. We are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession who've been called to declare the the majesty of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And and we have a, a privilege to declare that message and a responsibility to one another to live that message. So the words of Paul to the Corinthian church apply to us equally as much today. So we need to listen closely and understand what we are responsible for within our church today. Let's open our time in prayer. Fathers, we come to you this morning. We want to read and understand. We want to listen and learn from what you wrote to this church hundreds of years ago that has direct application in our world today and not just in our world, in this church. Who we are to be as a people of God. Set apart. Father, help us uh, hear these things in ways that motivate us and move us to live differently. That we would walk out of here different than we walked in. And may that be done by the work of your Spirit and the truth of your Word as we spend time together this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Let's look at this uh, passage together. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul continues writing to the Corinthians and he says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Strong words, aren't they? Apparently, when Paul received this report from somebody who was in the church in Corinth, who's traveled to Ephesus, where he's now located, they talked about the divisions that were developing within the Corinthian church. They apparently shared with him this issue of immorality. The word Paul uses to describe immorality is the word pornea. It's a very general term describing a broad spectrum of immoral sins. Things like premarital sex postmarital affairs, homosexuality. Pornea is the root word from which we get our word pornography, which is basically just visual images of those immoral sins, and it in and of itself is immoral. But then he hones in on the specific issue going on within the Corinthian church, and it's an issue that he says is not even found among the pagans. 
It's an issue of incest, where a man in the church is presently engaged in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. I want you to notice that when Paul brings up this point, he doesn't mention the person's name. And the reason I think that's the case is because he didn't have to. Everybody knew. It was the elephant in the room. They knew what was going on. And he was unrepentant because it continued to happen. But Paul is not pointing his finger at a specific person. Instead, he's calling attention to the church. Because he wants them to understand that the endorsement of that sin, as bad and wretched as it is, is as bad as the sin itself. And notice his criticism in verse 2. He says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned. The idea here is the church is not grieved by the presence of this sin. Their arrogance is revealed in their lack of concern. It's not my problem. (laughs) But Paul's words to the Corinthian church is, listen, if you are the body of Christ, then their problem is your problem. Because what happens in part affects the whole. In fact, I want you to think back to our study in Nehemiah last spring. Just kind of go back in the recesses of your mind. And I want to call attention to a particular scene that we looked at. You'll remember this because it was significant. It's the scene where Ezra, after having discovered the law that had been kind of buried and hidden, takes all the people in Israel together and he reads the law out loud to the people. And do you remember the response of the people when he read those words? They wept. They wept. They wept because the light of God's word shed truth into their lives and the sin that they had hidden. Not just personally, though. This was a shared grief. They wept together. Why was their grief shared? Think back to where they had just come from. Remember? Babylonian captivity, right? You see, after having heard the law, they realized that that captivity was a result of their disobedience. That the nation was judged because of the sin of individuals and their unwillingness to hold each other accountable. And I believe Paul has that same heart and mind when he looks to the church and he says the same holds true today. We, the church, are held accountable for the unrepentant sin of its members. You see, the Corinthians knew what was going on. They just didn't care. And why not? Same reason it's true for us sometimes. It's messy. And we don't want to get involved in in other people's problems. Not to mention the fact that if I hold you accountable, what does that require of me? The same level of transparency. So it's just a lot easier to turn a blind eye. To look the other way. But Paul says instead of looking the other way, God calls us to enter in. If you look at those verses, verses 3 and 4, you'll notice that within those two verses, at least three times, Paul says that he's with them in the Spirit. You see that? I'm present with you. I'm present with you. I'm present with you. 
I believe the reason that he repeats this is because he is telling them, I share in this responsibility with you. Don't do it because I said so. Do it because we, as a church, are responsible to do what God says. He instructs them, as you see in verse 4, when you are assembled, when you are together as a church body, you collectively come together to do what is right in the eyes of God. It's not his responsibility as an apostle to dole out the punishment. It's not even the responsibility of the governing elders in that church. It is the church's responsibility as a whole. Not based on just the hearsay or the gossip of a few people, but on the collective agreement of what exists within this church that they are all aware of, but unwilling to get involved in. And look what his instructions say in verse 5. He says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of judgment. Now, if you look at your Bibles, most of you probably see the first few words of verse 5, I have decided in italics. Do you see that? That's true for most of you if your Bibles do that. But the reason they're in italics is because they're not in the original language. The translators often put words like that to help the passage flow, but they're not in the original language, and so that's why they're italics. They're usually helpful. In this case, I don't think they're helpful. I think they're a little bit distracting because they seem to indicate that Paul is trying to dictate the decision of the church, but everything I've just told you would say differently. His point of saying, I am with you, I am with you, is his collective partnership with the church in Corinth that's saying, this is our responsibility. Don't do it because I said so. Do it because God says so. And so when you as a church are together, this is what you carry out in your faithfulness to the Lord. And I want you to look at what he says in verse 5 to even within that harsh what seems to be a harsh statement about handing them over to Satan, the intent is so that they what? Might be saved. The goal of accountability has always been redemption. I think Paul may have in mind the very words of Jesus when he talked about the responsibility that we have to one another. Let's look at that together. Matthew chapter 18. Just go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Here, Jesus speaking says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother redemption. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, then let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector. Paul, that's the idea behind Paul's statement of, of turning them over to Satan. It's this idea of, of treating them essentially as an unbeliever. But let me ask you this question before you get to condemning in your perspective. What is your goal with an unbeliever in your life? Redemption. Redemption. Delivering them to Satan is essentially Paul's way of saying, 
force them to live in Satan's domain outside of the protection of the church. Because the most unloving thing you can do for a brother and sister in Christ who is living in unrepentant sin is choosing to look the other way. In fact, let me ask you this question. Do you know what the opposite of love is? What did you say? That's the typical answer. And, and it makes sense. The opposite of love is hate. But let me ask you this. Is there not such a thing as righteous anger? Jealous anger? In the context of love, it says that God is a jealous God. Why is that true? It's because He loves us so much. He is unwilling to let things that have an evil intent take over our lives without intervening in a miraculous way. I love my wife and my family. And I promise you, I will have righteous anger if anybody gets in the way of their life with an intent to harm them. So within the context of love, there is a righteous anger, a righteous jelly. You know what the opposite of love is? Indifference. Indifference. I don't care. Do what you want to do. The opposite of love. Is indifference. Looking the other way. And Paul is saying, the love of God compels us to get involved, to be engaged, it, to pursue them like Matthew 18 describes, to go them in private. If they don't turn and, and continue in unrepentant sin, then bring somebody with you so that you can together say, we care about you. We have a redemptive goal in mind. If they continue to turn away, then at some point in time, they may, need to be removed outside of the protection of the church to feel the weight of the sin in their life, but with the hope and intent that they ultimately come to a place of repentance and redemption. That's always the goal of accountability. Turn to Christ. That destruction of the flesh is that destruction of sin, that hope of redemption found through faith in Him, so that they can be restored to the body of Christ, living the life that He's called us to. Look at how he continues in verse 6. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ is our Passover. Also, for, for Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed therefore let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven nor with leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth to make his point paul uses an analogy here of unleavened bread and for us to really understand that we have to understand it in in its context to understand the history and background of this and to do that let me ask you this how many of y'all have ever made friendship bread Has anybody ever done that so you kind of know how that concept works, right? A friend gives you a starter, which is ingredients that are allowed to ferment. And then when it reaches the place where it can cause uh, bread to be made, you actually take a piece of that out and then add ingredients to make your bread. But you've set aside uh, a part that you can either use or share with somebody else so that they can make bread. Okay? Leaven is the very same idea. 
Because what leaven is, is that you make a batch of dough. Then you pinch off a piece of that dough before you bake it so that that can be used to leaven the next batch of dough. And then when you get to that batch of dough, you do the same thing. You take the little leaven out before you bake the bread so that it can be used to leaven the next batch of dough. You get the idea? The Israelites did that consistently for a whole year, pulling out a little bit of leaven to leaven the next batch of dough. And when you look in Scripture, sin is often equated with leaven or leaven equated with sin. So what Paul is saying here by using this illustration is Corinthian church, you're boasting in your spiritual wisdom, your, your, your prominence in your faith, while all the while the leaven of sin is corrupting the entire church. Just like a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump of dough, that's what he says, in the same way a little bit of sin eventually infects the entire church body. And so he says in verse 7, clean out the old leaven so that you can have a new lump of dough. And then he says in verse 8, celebrate the feast. And what he's talking about is the feast of unleavened bread. In that feast, the Israelites looked back to the day in which they were delivered from the captivity of the Israelites. And they had to leave in such a hurry that they couldn't take the leaven with them. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a time in which they cook without leaven as a reminder of that day that they were delivered. And they couldn't take leaven with them. And it's often done in connection with Passover. Because Passover is what saved them in the first place. You'll remember that the angel of death came into the place of Egypt. And the only, time, only place you could be saved is if the blood of that lamb sacrificed was over your doorpost. Then the angel of death passed over that home, and protected those people. And look at what Paul says. Christ is our Passover. It's His blood that protects us from the penalty of sin, which is death. And he's saying, what we need to do is come together as a people of God and be reminded of what Christ accomplished through His sacrifice on the cross and live like that people, set apart for His purposes. Paul's point is that the, the presence of unrepentant sin within the body of Christ goes against the very nature of what Christ accomplished on our behalf. What arrogance it is for them to take that for granted, to act as if it doesn't matter, to, to kind of push it into the background. He tells them, you are unleavened. You have been made new. The blood of Christ has covered you, and you are forgiven. It goes back to that passage in 1 Peter 2, 9, that you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people after God's own possession, set apart to proclaim the majesty who, of Him who called us out of darkness and into light. Our lives should be an ongoing celebration of our new life in Christ, made possible through the blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. You are unleavened. The old is gone. The new has come. And we should live in accordance to what Christ has accomplished on our behalf.
when he tells the Thessalonians, God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. Christians are called to live their lives in accordance with what Christ accomplished. That's his point. So he tells them to to celebrate the feast with, with that in mind. To not be distracted by selfish pride and indifference towards sin as if it doesn't matter. Because all that does is minimize the sacrifice that says it does. So live accordingly to what Christ accomplished on our behalf. Now look at what he says in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if his life is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. But for you, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul finishes up by clarifying a point that apparently he made in a previous letter. We call this letter 1 Corinthians. (laughs) But apparently there was a letter before this one. And so in this letter that we have before us, he's clarifying a point that he made in that first letter to the Corinthians. And specifically, he's talking about the the comment he made about not being associated with immoral people. And to simplify what he's saying, he's saying, look, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have two relationships that exist in your life, two categories of relationships, okay? The first category are those relationships that you have with those that you are influencing toward Christ. That's one category. The second category are those relationships that you have with others who are based on a shared faith in Christ. Those are the only two categories. Those you are influencing towards Christ and those that are based on faith in Christ. And so he distinguishes those and then says, as it relates to that first category, those you are influencing towards Christ. He says, don't forget. Maybe he had Ephesians chapter 2 in mind. Let me read that to you. You don't need to turn there, but listen to this. And he was speaking about what we want according to the... He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of, the, of wrath, even as the rest. The, the point is, is, is that that's what exists in the world, but you can't completely separate yourself from that because it's what exists. You, gotta, you can't impact their lives if you don't enter into their lives. But the reality is, is that although we are to be in the world, not of the world, which tells us that those relationships are distinguished because we live by a different set of values. And what Paul's trying to communicate here is, yes, you need to get engaged with relationships with those who don't know Christ, but they have boundaries. They exist within limits. 
That's why he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He goes on to say, for what, what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness, with light and darkness? These relationships have limits. So don't seek intimate fellowship with those who don't know Christ. It could be your best friend, the guys you hang out with, the guy you're dating, thinking, well, I know they're not a believer, but I know that I can influence them to become a believer, and that's the goal of the relationship. Wrong. Because let me tell you why. And, and please listen to me on this. If you are not influencing them towards Christ, then I can assure you they are influencing you towards sin. There's no neutral ground. If your goal in those relationships is not to influence them towards Christ, if you're just hanging out because they're good buddies, they are influencing you towards sin. That's the reality. And Paul's point is don't be so arrogant that you think you can walk in there and be unaffected. You go in with the right mind, with the right heart, to influence them towards Christ. Love them, but within the limits of a relationship that you should have with those who don't know Christ. Because your goal is to lead them to Christ, and it has limits. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. But the primary point of Paul's message in this passage is really not to that first group. The message is to the second group. And that is to those who call themselves believers but don't live like they are. You notice in verse 11 when he describes the qualities of these people, it's the same, same exact list of those who live in the world. What he's trying to make a point is their lives don't look any different than what you see in the world. This is not a, a checklist to say, well, do they fit in these categories? Look behind the list and see what the heart says. And the heart says that they have moved into a place where they love self more than they love God. And he's saying, do not fellowship with those who live in unrepentant sin. In fact, he says, don't even have a meal with them. Why, why such strong language? Well, let me give you three reasons why. Number one, it's not good for them. Because all you're doing is validating their compromise. All you're doing is saying, you know what, it's okay. Shall we continue it in sin so that grace may increase? Sure. That's not what it says. All we're doing is validating their compromise. We need to call them to repentance. It's not good for them to look the other way. You're hurting them. You're not loving them. But the other reason is, is that it's not good for the church. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. A little bit of sin infects the entire body. And don't forget that when God looks upon his people, he sees us collectively and we are judged accordingly. Go to the book of Revelation and notice in those first few chapters who Paul, or excuse me, who God is talking to as John describes those letters. It's the church at Ephesus, the church at Laodicea. The church at Smyrna. 
You see, they are collectively being judged or encouraged by their faith together. And so we don't need to minimize the fact that when God looks at us, He holds us responsible for how we relate to one another. It's not good for the individual. It's not good for the church. And it's not good for the mission. If there's not evidence of transformed lives within the body of Christ, if we're not a peculiar people, then we don't have a story to tell. If there is not evidence of redemption, we have no testimony. It's not good for the mission. It's not good for the individual. It's not good for the church. It's not good for God's mission. God judges those who don't know Christ, but the church is responsible to hold people accountable who say they love Jesus, but they don't live like they do. Here's why I think this is so challenging to us in our world today. It's because we hear words like this, and they kind of strike a chord of discomfort to us because we live in a culture of individualism. And even, this even shapes the way we look at our Christian life. We talk about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We talk about how you cultivate that relationship with time in God's Word and time in prayer. We talk about the importance of coming to church so that you can uh, grow and learn and, 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 and really be moved in your worship to be connected closer to God. And those things are true. But not simply because of what they do for you. In fact, I want to challenge you this morning. And I want to suggest to you that the only thing personal about your relationship with Jesus Christ is the individual decision that you made to put your faith and trust in Him simply because nobody else can do that for you. But when you made that decision to put your trust in Christ, you entered into the family of God. You entered into a body of Christ where our lives are now interdependent with one another. And what happens in part affects the whole. We've moved from this place of selfishness of sin where it's centered on me to a place of redemption where it centers on us and who we are as a people of God. You know, Paul talks about when you finish the race, <laughs> let me just help us understand and remind us we're not competing against each other. This is not a race to see who can get to the finish line first. Instead, this is more like that scene that you've seen with the Special Olympics. You know which I'm, what I'm talking about? They all line up for the race. They take off. One of them falls. Guess what happens? They all stop. They turn around and go help that person finish so that they can finish together. That's the point. That's what the church is called to do. Not race against each other, but race for and with one another. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. This is a passage that I think we really need to center our hearts on this morning as it relates to this passage. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul's writing again. And I want you to listen to what he has to say. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, 
so that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with the power, with power through his spirit in the inner man. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts, plural, collectively, through faith. And that you, plural, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend, plural, with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you, plural, may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Being filled up with the fullness of God exists within the fellowship of the church, of the saints, of the body of Christ. Yes, it can be messy. Yes, it can be incredibly inconvenient. Yes, there is a cost associated with such a lifestyle. But look at the reward. The very presence of God dwells within the context of a family that loves each other, that encourages each other, that holds each other accountable by reminding one another of what Christ accomplished on our behalf so that we can live lives accordingly. few weeks ago I told you about this retreat that I went on with this group of guys and I'm going to take a chance this morning <laughs> I'm going to open up my life to you and tell you my takeaway it really was a two word takeaway go deeper and the reason those words came up was because I looked at this past year and I thought this has been a good year I'm really thankful for what God has done in my marriage my family, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by this church body and being a part of this family. But I was reminded of the importance not to be satisfied with status quo. I needed to go deeper. One of the things that struck me, Jerry, you'll remember after the family conference that we did a few weeks ago, you came up to me after that first night. And in encouragement, you said to me, boy, we really enjoyed that. You said, I've I felt like we were able to see you in a whole different way that we haven't seen before. Well, that caused me to pause. It caused me to think about, well, <laughs> I want them to know me. I don't want to hold back. I want to be known and to know. It's real easy for me to sit up here and say, well, I'm the pastor, and so people look at me differently. And there's this safe distance that everybody wants to keep, and that's just the way it is. Baloney! I need you! We need each other. We need to go deeper. At the beginning of the year, when I looked at my journal, I saw that Terry and I were in a difficult place. And what we realized is that we were on a mission to divide and conquer. <laughs> that's how we were managing life because it was of such a complexity that that's how we managed life. Divide and conquer. But we were empty. 
And so we made a decision that we weren't going to do that anymore. This was a partnership. And we were doing it together. And I can tell you today that the richness of my relationship with Terry is unlike it's ever been before because we're in it together. We're not going to divide and conquer. It's not an option. We're going deeper in our relationship with one another because we need each other. I think about my relationship with my boys. It's real easy for me as a dad, especially as a pastor, to expect a certain pattern of behavior. Well, guess what? They're going to screw up. They're going to make mistakes. And I want my home to be a safe place so that no sins are hidden. But they feel the freedom to speak with the hope of redemption. I need to go deeper. So at our staff meeting this last week, I shared some things with the staff that God had convicted in my own heart. And so my statement to them was, I'm going to share my conviction with you. <laughs> I don't want to be alone in this. Um, and so I want to do the same thing this morning. I want to challenge you to go deeper. To go deeper in your relationships with one another. To not look the other way when you see people falling away. To go get them. Engage meaningful relationships. Love one another. Encourage each other. Don't walk away from a conversation saying, I wish I would have just spoken a word of encouragement. Turn back around and go do it. Go deeper. Go deeper in your marriage. Find ways to, to love your spouse in the meaningful way that they deserve. Your partners, not dividing and conquering, you're together. So live life in that way. Go deeper in your family. Don't live by a list of rules. Get to their heart and love them where they're at. Go deeper. So that's my challenge to you. And I believe that that's the heart of this passage this morning. It's not an issue of a single person's sin. It's the culture of that church. And Paul is saying, look at what Christ has done. Live lives accordingly and go deeper. Be the people that God's called us to be. We have a chance this evening to, to celebrate a feast, right? And I want to encourage us to celebrate that feast with this heart in mind. That we are a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a chosen people, set apart to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So when we come together tonight and we bring people with us, then that's the heart I want us to have in mind. Living out the fullness and the beauty and the wonder of what God has done in our lives. And that's worth celebrating. So let's have that heart when we come together this evening. There's a lot to be thankful for there. Right, Caleb? Let's pray together. Father, uh, sometimes the, the hardest passages are the ones that we have the tendency to most often look over because we just don't want to deal with it. But in fact, those are the things often where we find the most richest, most meaningful truths that impact our lives in the most powerful way. So Father, I pray that we continue to look upon the heart behind Paul's message to this church in Corinth and his call to, to them to, to live life at a deep level in accordance with what has been accomplished because of what Christ did on the cross. And that everything that they do in their fellowship and in their lives would reflect that truth. They'd love each other, encourage each other, hold each other accountable 
with the plan of redemption in mind. The hope of restoration. Father, I pray that as we come together tonight to celebrate this feast, that we would celebrate it with the, the heart and mind of what, that we've been made new of sins. Well, the old is gone. The new has come. You told us. You start over in your relationship with me that has been restored, and now you are made new. May we celebrate that gift and that truth in our time together this evening. Father, thanks for our time together this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.